Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi Marjorie, how are you today? I'm great. How are you doing today, Claire? I'm really happy. Happy to see the sun shining again. You know how much that matters to me. It does, yeah. And me too, you know, I think it's a weird place that one day it's winter and one day it's summer, but on summer days it definitely brings you to a high, doesn't it? Beginning of autumn, things are wrapping up. I like it when things tie up in nice neat bows. I don't know about you, but I like a project finished. I like the beginning of something. It's the middle bits that are hard, isn't it? Yeah, and can you believe that today we're talking about our very last open book commissioned writing I know, and um, it feels really strange to come to the end of it. We'll we'll have to just carry on having these conversations offline, and all of you out there can come and have a cup of coffee with us if you want, because it feels like it's just become part of this time, hasn't it, these regular conversations? And I think it's really helped keep me sane in lockdown to know that I'll be having these conversations and having this chat and getting a chance to read something new and something different and something I haven't come across before. It's been really nice. Yeah, I I got a message from a friend this week saying that she'd been really missing me but she'd been joining us for a a cup of coffee every week and she felt like she'd seen me which was really nice and we'll just have to start planning the next series (laughs) what would you like us to talk about out there let us know we'd love to hear from you as long as it's not something you know crazy or grim through the winter Uh, although crazy might be acceptable So today we've got this lovely piece um, by Pauline Moore, who is not just an amazing writer, but also one of our lead readers, which we're delighted to be able to include her and a couple of the others in this series. And we're going to finish off with Go Among the Trees and Sit Still by Wendell Berry, one of my favourite poets. So I'm always pleased when I find that he's someone else's favourite poet too, or favourite among the favourites. Shall I start us off this morning? Yeah, that'd be great. I Took My Troubles for a Walk, a grown-up fairy tale by Pauline Moore. What I'm about to tell you happened on an unusually warm mid-autumn afternoon when I was on a walk in James River State Park in Virginia. I'd just finished a 40-minute hike. When I arrived and parked the car, I chose the river trail. It looked safer there, nearer the road, with the railway at the other side. I thought bears wouldn't like the noise. I'd nearly changed my mind when I saw the warning signs about their presence. Grass snakes slithered out of my way. I caught the back end of a groundhog rushing off. There were horse tracks leading to the water's edge. I followed them and came to a wide clearing of rocks and sand. I stayed a while, imagining saddled horses drinking long or preparing to cross. Not now but generations ago, when frontiers folk would have camped here. Virginians watching wagon trains across the river, dreaming of going further west to the unknown, their fires at night warding off coyotes and black bears. Time was moving on, so I decided to be brave and see if the scary-looking Cabell Trail was a shortcut back to the car. Dark clouds were forming, An earthy smell hinted at rain. I breathed this all in, giddy as the trees whispered and swayed. Here it was so simple. I was a pioneer in an unfamiliar land, keeping the river to my right. I laughed, spinning round, delighted with my navigation skills, as indeed the wooded path brought me back to the safety of my car. I checked my watch 
reckoning I'd saved 20 minutes. I got my sandwiches and flask. All the earlier cars were gone. As I settled down to read at a lone picnic table, I heard a noise coming from the trail I'd just left. Fellow hikers, maybe? I glanced at the time and carried on eating and reading, lulled by the breeze. I poured a cup of soup. Everything was perfect. I closed my eyes for a moment or two, inhaling the scent of wood and musk. I grew aware of something in front of me, quite close. I looked up and froze cup mid-air. It was the glossiest blue-black fur coat I'd ever seen. The bear, with its head slightly to one side, stared back like an awkward teenager, arms dangling by his side. I fixed on the white V flash on his neck. V for Virginia, at least it's native. I believed this would be my last thought. I didn't move, just stared. The bear's nostrils flared as the steam of the soup drifted towards him. The bear blinked and moved forward. Carry on, he said politely, don't let me disturb you. The trees were still now. The woods held their breath. Very slowly I moved the cup to my mouth, testing myself. Unclenching my teeth I tasted the sourness of fear. I never took my eyes off the now talking bear. We don't get to see many humans this close up and eating, he continued. Normally they freeze like you did now, then run or walk away very quickly. Maybe I was unconscious, dead even, collapsed on the ground. I couldn't even move my eyes to look for my body. I wanted to show you off to my bear friend, but she's a bit shy. Okay, was all I could manage. I'm trying to impress her, he said, leaning towards me across the picnic table. He moved closer, as if he wanted to sit down, but wasn't sure. I've watched humans from afar, but they tend to be in twos or more, and it can be a bit intimidating. I wondered if this was someone dressed up, a practical joke. If so, the costume was bloody good. Shall we stop there for a moment? (laughs) Yeah. So I went to college in Virginia, so I have a particular image in my head when this story starts of James River State Park and like what it might have looked like at this time. And of course, it's this time of year for us as well. So this kind of autumnal, but very warm. So I feel right at home in the beginning of the story. And in some ways that kind of, I don't know if that just sets me at ease as to what's coming. It's a particularly different sense than I ever get in the UK. And a kind of gratefulness that autumn has come in a way that we don't get here. And I think that Pauline does just a brilliant job of setting the scene with her descriptions. I really love the section where she's at the river and she's imagining the frontiers folk from times gone by and the horses. And it's funny to me that she sets up the story, but she's choosing a path because she thinks they're less likely to be bears. She kind of sets us up for something, doesn't she? And there's just a sort of languidness to it, isn't there? There's a gentle hike, you know, post-hike enjoyment and picnic sandwiches and reading and almost lulled into a false sense of you know she's safely back at the car she's navigated the bear risk and then we get the surprise of this visitor yeah and what do we make of this do we think it's a real bear kind of want it to be 
I like the idea of a talking bear. And I love the funny the funny bits about it being kind of a, a bit like an awkward teenager. Yeah. Arms dangling and the V for Virginia, almost like it's wearing a hoodie. And then when he speaks, you think, okay, it takes the story into a different element or sort of arena, doesn't it? That idea of a talking bear. I think because the title describes the story as a grown-up fairy tale, I think the effect of that is makes much more willing to accept the talking bear in the story. This is something writers talk about a lot. How much do you give away in your title? What are you setting your reader up for in your title? And as you say here, she's given us permission for, well, she's given herself permission for almost anything to happen. You know, and as a reader, our expectations are much broader than they might have been. So yeah, I think you're right. The title really helps. But also, you know, that sort of setting of the scene feels very fairy tale-ish. River and a lovely walk and, a, you know, I feel lulled in the way that you often do at the beginning of a fairy tale before the dark clouds come. And I think there's a real ringer there, isn't there, where the dark clouds were forming and this rain is coming. And so, okay, let's talk about the bear. It's funny to me. I don't know if you found it funny. Yeah, I did. Despite the fact that we know that she's fearful and she's tasting the sourness of fear and she never takes her eyes off and her cup freezes midair, I wasn't fearful for her. As soon as you've got a talking bear, you don't think he's going to kill you. But then he's funny. You know, I want to show you off. It's really funny. And I'm trying to impress her. <laughs> She's a bit shy. <laughs> yeah, he is a teenager, isn't he? Which is funny. I like that he finds humans in groups of two or more a bit intimidating. <laughs> I know. I mean, I always have this question about how, you know, and there's a whole debate as well about how often we give animals human qualities. And that's kind of, there's a lot of criticism around about writing that does that. When we say, oh, that cat is shy or that dog is aggressive or whatever, you know, in fact, they're just being a cat or a dog. And But here I find it quite endearing, you know, because in some ways I think, how else are we supposed to see the world? How else could we view the things around us except in relation to our own experience? I don't know. So I'm, I'm totally taken with this bear. And again, I guess maybe the fairy tale in the title gives us permission to be outside of our comfort zone in some way. And I think there's ways of giving those human characteristics that feel more honest than others. This feels very much like there's no punches pulled. She's created this character who happens to be a bear, but who has human characteristics. So it doesn't feel in any way that she's negating the fact that it's a bear or insulting the animal, which I think sometimes when that debate happens about whether we should be imposing human characteristics on animals, it's a different type of writing, or it feels to me like a different type of writing. I mean, this is clearly not taking itself too seriously. Yes. And I mean, I guess what I'm thinking about is, and I, I kind of object to it less when it's domestic animals as well, because of course, those are animals we've brought into our space. But you know, it, it's when we describe a nightingale as longing or whatever. And here, I think, as you say, it's gone one step further, because the bear is a wild animal, but actually, it's a fairy tale. She also sort of plants that seed with us when she asks if it's someone dressed up mm, as a practical yeah. joke. So she she sort of reinforces that idea with us. I love the maybe I was unconscious, dead even, collapsed on the ground. I couldn't even move my eyes to look for my body. You know, that kind of like, it's beyond fear. It's kind of, yeah, I just can't do anything else but look at this phenomenon that's in front of me. And that tells us a lot about her too, right? And her sort of view of the world. And I think that's funny. I don't think she's being serious there. I think she's being laughing at herself. So we carry on. Yeah, I want to, I want to find out what happens next. I'm sure we must be a bit strange to you. My head was swimming. Either I was going to die or feel very stupid after this charade played out. Maybe I should play along just in case. So where's your bear friend then? 
He turned and gestured towards a wide tree trunk. I knew I was alive as my heart thumped against my ribs. A finer, slightly smaller bear appeared from behind the tree. She waved a shy paw and then came forward. Hello, she whispered. Hello, maybe I'd be spared. See, I told you it would be all right. The first bear turned to face me again. Where do you live? Up there on the hill? He nodded towards the visitor's centre. No, I said, I live in another country. That's the visitor's centre where humans go to find out about you and the other wildlife in the park. This surreal conversation continued. Are we really that scary? Asked the shy bear friend from slightly behind the first bear. Well, you don't seem too frightening. I set my cup down before it shook out of my hand. What's that? asked the first bear, pointing at my open flask. It's mushroom. Organic. We snack on mushrooms, but I've never seen them like that before. Can I look? Of course. I thought of my family and friends who would recommend a good therapist. This break was meant to do me good. Maybe there was something in the mushroom soup. Would you mind awfully if I kept this as a souvenir? Yes, of course. Be my guest. I pushed the flask across the table. Was this really me sounding so calm? It's just that no one leaves anything behind anymore. We need relics for our museum and there's a reward for good stuff like this. I felt myself returning. The couple edged forward and eventually joined me at that picnic table. We just stared at each other for a while. Then they started telling me about their plans. They were looking for a suitable den. Their families don't understand modern ways. Bears needed to branch out and move with the times, learn more about humans. By now, I was fully involved. We discussed the coming winter. Which were the best trails in the park? I sought their advice, told them about the purpose of my trip, and asked them if I should give up my job and start something new. They weren't sure. The Shire bear friend suggested I could come and live in the woods for a while with them. I thought about this for a while. It was getting darker. What's the best thing to do if you meet a bear unexpectedly, I asked. Should you make yourself big by putting your hands up and making a loud noise? The two bears fell off the bench in fits of laughter. Big tears rolled down their cheeks. They tried to stop and then start all over again. They got up and mimicked humans trying to be scary. I laughed with them, realizing how stupid it must look. It was now early evening, and we shared a family packet of crisps. The threatened rain had stayed off. The last birdsong chorus of the day was starting. In the distance, I heard a dog bark and caught sight of two figures rounding a bend near the visitor centre. Okay, time for us to skedaddle. Humans are one thing, dogs are another, said the first bear. They waved goodbye as they ambled off towards the tall grasses. I sat in the evening light, breathing in the musk and the wood. I packed my rucksack and stretched my stiff limbs. Before heading to my car, I took off my watch and left it on the picnic table for the Bear Museum. It's funny, isn't it? There's some really, really clever, funny little parts in that that I really enjoyed as you were reading it. Yeah, she does that thing which we were just talking about, but the other way around. Bears making fun of us. 
it is a hilarious idea that you're going to frighten off a bear. I love the way, too, that she starts to think there's something in her soup. Especially because it's mushroom soup. <laughs> so it's possible she's got a dodgy mushroom in there. That sort of mocking of the souvenirs and the relics from the museum feels very tongue-in-cheek. And that idea that bears don't understand, their families don't understand. They just don't understand. It's like classic teenager language, isn't it? You know, you've got to be more modern. You've got to move with the times. All these sorts of things that we all said to our parents. And I'm sure our children will if they haven't already say to us. The power doesn't ever really flip because it's always with the bears in the story, if you want to call it that. You know, she's asking them for advice about her life. They're very clear on what it is that they want to do. And she's a fully grown adult sitting at a picnic table talking to bears saying, what should I do? Should I quit my job? And I love the idea they suggest that she goes to live with them in, in the next <laughs> I mean, you could imagine that if you're at a sort of crisis point or decision point in your life of actually taking off and having a bit of time out to just settle your ideas. I'm not sure you would go and do it in the woods living with bears, but there's something quite sensible in that suggestion and quite grown up for a couple of teenage bears. I love the the last line of the story, the thing about the museum and having relics and, and that funny sort of poke at modern times where nobody leaves anything behind because, you know, we're all being so environmental, we keep everything clear. I mean, I remember as a kid camping in probably Virginia or West Virginia, and we had to, um, must have been Girl Scouts, you had to take your food at the end of the day and put it in a bag or something like a big canvas bag all the food and everything went in big canvas bags as well as all the secret sweets and things you were allowed you weren't really supposed to bring that you had shoveled into your pockets and your bags it was really impressed on you that you wouldn't get in trouble but you had to put them in these canvas bags and then they would get strung up in the trees overnight i've read about that and i've read about campers who didn't do that getting into trouble because the bears have smelled the food and, and come looking for it. Everything got strung up into the trees so that they would leave you alone in your tent. And you could hear things outside at night. And you were told not to leave your tent, you know, during the night. What happened if you needed the loo? Uh, I think you were told to go in pairs and not very far. But I, I think beyond midnight, you weren't really, you really weren't to leave your tent. Which is a kind of funny thing, isn't it? But I do have memories of being in a tent as a kid, hearing a kind of rustling of things outside. Whereas here, you know, you don't, we don't have bears in this part of Scotland, do we? In this no, part of don't worry. You should know this. It should be, in, see, that's the sort of useful thing that would have been useful for you to know from your citizenship study. Um, I think there have been conversations at various times about reintroducing wolves and bears and other formerly native animals back into the Highlands. But I haven't heard much about it recently. So I suspect there's quite a lot of debate on pros and cons and no decisions been taken yet. So, but there are no bears anywhere no. in the UK. Apart from zoos. That's terrible, but also re makes me relax even further. Okay, well, these are not bears that are stuck in an enclosure painted light blue and pacing, 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 quite rightly angry. Uh, no, these are bears sharing a family packet of crisps, which <laughs> I, I love. that image, yeah. Um, and just sitting around the table and, then, you know, and even the things like the, the shy bear coming up and waving, you know, she's just gone for it, you know, rather than like giving them the odd bit and piece of human behavior, she's just gone for it, which I really love. And then we're suddenly in. And, and it makes you wonder about your own humanity, I think. Um, if you see it in a bear, it's a great reflection of, or a great tactic to make us think about why it is we behave the way we do. Particularly when you, she points out the sort of silly ways that humans respond when they see bears, which is to play dead or throw your arms up. Apparently, I remember being told that the best thing to do with a bear is to punch it because they'll be stunned. So you get, because you're never going to outrun a bear ever. So yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? All these sort of silly things that you, you're told. So, but if you out there know what you're actually supposed to do when you see a bear, 
let us know because we didn't get a decent answer from these bears, did we? No, we did not. <laughs> Shall we move on to the poem? Yeah, let's see how, how it pairs with this. Fact. I don't think the poem's funny unless I don't understand Wendell very well. It's called Go Among Trees and Sit Still. I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. After days of labour, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last, and I sing it. As we sing, the day turns. The trees move. This is an interesting poem for Pauline to choose, because it feels like it's in many ways the opposite of what happens in her story. He's thinking about the things that fear him. And maybe, maybe her assumption is that the bears don't fear her and they do. It's like, in some ways, a, di- the, a, di- a real difference from the, the I in the story. I don't know if you get that sense. It feels like, in some ways, the flip. Oh, that's so interesting because for me, it was the opposite. It was the mirror image. First of all, it's her being afraid of the bears. And then we discover the bears are afraid of her. For me, this poem talks about what is afraid of her, but also talks about what she is afraid of. But I think for me that the beginning of that, what is afraid of me comes and what it fears, the part in me that it fears goes and therefore it's able to sing. And something about that leaves space for the thing that she or he in this case is afraid of. And it feels much more purposeful. So, you know, you're going to the woods to sit still and be, to sit in that space and be open to that. In the story, it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like you're going to the woods to spend a day off, acknowledging at some level that you're at a kind of turning point where she is wondering whether she should leave her job and change her life. But it's not that same going to the woods to sit still. You know, of the very the, the very first line, I go among the trees and sit still, is the opposite of going to the woods, parking up and taking a long hike. I'm ready for something different, which it feels like there is a kind of mental awareness of what you're waiting for, the openness to that happening. And I had read it that it was a natural consequence because I've dealt with what is afraid of me. Next, I will deal with what I am afraid of. So a recognition of those two parts of almost the same two sides of the same coin. But correct me if I'm wrong, you're thinking that it's only because you deal with what is afraid of you that then you are able to deal with what you are afraid of. Well it feels like that's what's happening in this poem, that it leaves the space to acknowledge what's underneath that. So I mean I'm thinking about, you know, when you have an argument with someone or a falling out with someone, there has to be a kind of acknowledgement, I think. Maybe fear is a strong word here acknowledging that there's something about you that's wrong or that some other thing has a capacity to fear means trying to change it, right? Trying to break that barrier down or let go of that characteristic or acknowledge bravado or maybe a front of some kind. It's only by acknowledging that 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 exists and maybe shouldn't have or there's hurt or whatever that we open ourselves up to realize that we are hurt or you know, are afraid of something else. So often, I think, kind of anger and bad behavior is really a form of fear. 
I wish I could acknowledge it in myself more. I'm by no means <laughs> an expert. But, you know, it's a kind of blustering, protective quality. And as soon as you can let that go, you realize what it's hiding, if that makes sense. And I think that idea of once you've done that, what you get left with is singing. And then that's something that you can then hear. You know, that suggestion is that until you've dealt with the fear, in whichever form it finds itself in this poem, you can't hear properly and you can't listen. I guess that last stanza brings it all together for me. That idea that after days of labor, mute in my consternations, I hear my song at last. But for me, that is really linked to that second stanza of acknowledging that there's something in you that others fear, letting down that pretense or barrier. And it all comes from that. Because if you don't do that, if you just think, what am I afraid of? I'm not afraid of anything. You know, what am I afraid of? Until you acknowledge the barriers you're putting in place, the doors won't open. So I feel like that last stanza, the days of labor, refers back to trying to uncover what happens in the third stanza in this case, what I'm afraid of comes. But being unsuccessful because the first part hasn't happened. You haven't acknowledged that there's a part of you that others are afraid of, you know, that you're complicit in some way. And only by doing that and then unlocking what's going on in your own life you can hear your own song and then you can sing it. You know, they're two different things. It's not just hearing it or just singing it. And because of that, the whole day turns. And also that, as we sing, I think it's incredibly important in that stanza. First of all, you sing your own song, I sing it. And then there's a coming together and a sort of reconciliation. And it's the reconciliation that makes the day turn. I don't even think it's having done the hard work that necessarily needs. It's a step on from that. You've done the work, you've acknowledged it yourself, but you've to find a way to reach out. And at that point, the day turns. It's interesting because in the beginning of It Sings and I Hear It's Song comes twice at the end of the second and the third stanza. It feels like singing is being done by fear, I guess. Great. What is singing in those stanzas? For me, it's your heart when the fear has left it. I think you described it as a space. It's the space that the fear leaving has created or left behind. But so why in the third stanza when we're talking about the thing that I am afraid of, the I, is it not I sing? For me, it's what it's the thing that you're afraid of is singing. Because then what I'm afraid of comes, begins that third stanza. And the last line of that stanza is, it sings. Whereas by the, the last stanza, you're right, we are singing. So you're singing along with it, which is really interesting. And that's what unlocks the day. That's when the trees begin to move again. It's amazing, these moments of epiphany in Barry's work, which are so often, band- I mean, I don't know, in, maybe just in my circles, but so often bandied around. And you know, he's seen as a kind of great nature poet and being able to express the ways that nature connects with us as he- or we connect with nature as humans. But actually, this is a really incredibly deep poem about epiphany, I think, and about self-understanding. As for me, even as we've discussed it, you can go deeper and deeper into it in a way that I wouldn't have guessed if I had just read it and set it down. There's layers to it. And the thing I think that makes it just so astonishing is that in my experience, and I've not read all of his work, but he doesn't tend to use particularly complex language. So the vocabulary and the words he uses are relatively simple in general terms. And in a way, the fact you don't have to try and work out what the words mean, I think allows you more space and more time when you're reading the poem to work out the message, if you like, he's getting at or the idea that he's expressing. I think you're right. There is, and that mirrors what I like about him generally, is that this sort of very simple language 
can be read on so many different levels. So lots of people just love reading his work because they feel that they're with him looking at the tree or looking at the river or looking at the fields or whatever. And then, as I just said, you know, we can dig down and down and down into the poems, which is true of all good poems. What's amazing about his work to me is it really mirrors the way he lives his life. So he's a farmer in Kentucky. He's in his 90s now, so I don't know how much farming he's doing, but remember I got to hear him read in New York when I lived there. He's just an incredibly steady reader, just like you might expect someone who's really at one with the world around him. So he's grown up in the same place, farmed the same land, and has this incredible affinity or comfort, I would say, with the land he's on. And there's something about that affinity that allows something deeper to emerge, if that makes sense. So it's a bit like having a holiday. It's hard to have deep thoughts on a holiday because your 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 eyes and your brain are forever tempted by the new and the different and the unusual and seeking out those things. But when you're in a place you know really well, that's the moment I was going to say where you you might learn something new, you might discover something because your brain kind of can switch off. It's like someone I know saying children only ever learn properly when they're bored. You know, in summertime, that's the point at which they learn because they're actually going off and having to explore and having to dig a bit deeper rather than being entertained. I don't know if that's something that people just say to mums like us who have lots of children to entertain in the summer <laughs> and to make us feel less bad, but um, there is there is that. But there, I feel like for him, you know, these kind of moments of real understanding and deep understanding come from not being engaged with the glittering new just the wonder of what actually still surrounds him. And it's not the case, I think, that he has never engaged with the glittering you. I think he was a very successful academic, university professor, travelled relatively extensively in the US, and then chose to return back to the farm where he'd grown up. I would encourage you all to go and find the great little interviews of him. He doesn't give interviews often, but they're quite funny when he does because he's determinedly old school, still writes on paper, you know, still farms his land. But he's quite a lovely character and it comes across in, in all the interviews of him as well as his work. You know, I think you get a sense of the kind of kind and gentle man that he is. And luckily that's backed up by... Um, you know, all the interviews that are around of him and all the readings. There's nothing more disappointing. I know you and I have experienced this, Claire, when you have a sense of what someone should be like based on their work. And then you hear them read or, you know, go to an event and think, come away thinking, hmm, that's not who I thought that was going to be. And then it kind of, for me, it puts you off their work. If you're one of those people, I would encourage you to go and find everything out there about Wendell Berry, because everything that's there just underlines what you think he's going to be like, which is a lovely thing, actually, in a nice way. And what a gorgeous poem to finish up our um, Unbound Commissioned Writing series. Thank you for choosing that, Pauline. And thank you for another great story. I think that's all from us at the end of our Unbound Commissions. We've loved being in your ears and we hope to be back with you again very soon. 